0: Welcome to Mike Dump with Chirol Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandon Steele And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors.
1: Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away.
0: Well, that's contingent on who's given the advice, and you'll want to take mine.
1: <laughs> Let's dive in.
0: Hey, this is Tim and Brandon coming back with Miked Up with Cairo Up. We have an interesting podcast today. This is going to be fueled by a lot of questions that you and I get in practice, which is the number one thing is tissue healing. Why are things not getting better as fast as every patient wants them to get, which is immediately. So we're gonna take a deep dive into that. And then also one paper that I thought was very interesting, I think it was 2018, 2019, it talked about a condition called friction ridiculitis. And while that may seem like a nuance, a couple of patients here and there may have it, it's actually a lot more common than you would think. And the theory behind it affects all of our patients with lumbar, any kind of a herniation, whether it's a cervical or lumbar spine problem. And I hope we can provide a couple little tidbits, clinical pearls, and also some information and exercises through up to help you manage these cases. But first, I asked Dr. Burlesman to put together two things you learned since the last podcast. So
1: what are they? Two things. Whoa. Uh, I think number one, never trust Dr. Steele with your unlocked smartphone. That's, uh, that's a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard to learn. Uh, what about number two? So uh, let's go with Adams. Adams, What's yeah, that? they make up everything.
0: <laughs> well, at least we got a funny one in on the first one. <laughs> uh, so let's dive into the podcast. I started off with uh, talking about
1: what? Uh, let's talk about uh, the new year. It's a new year. It's a new time for us to practice and it's a great time to reactivate our patients a lot of them got busy during the holidays they forgot about you And they forgot about their health, and now they are turning over a new leaf, and that could include you and I helping them to be more healthy. Uh, So it's a great time after the first week or two of the year that we want to kind of give them a nudge. And so we do a reactivation in our clinic, Premier Rehab. We'll send out a postcard to our patients who we've not seen in the past three months but have in the past two years, people who probably still have some issues going on especially if they were Dr. Steele's patient and we'll send them a postcard and then more importantly after the postcard is we have one of our friendliest uh, most outgoing staff members uh, reach out to that patient via phone call and just say hey did you get the postcard we're interested in seeing how you're feeling and do you need anything from us if you'd like to come in we can set up an appointment And we get a a very good response from that, and it tends to fill that schedule back up pretty quickly. One thing that I've learned through the years is that it's hard to pump up slow times, that it's hard to do any marketing to balance out Christmas, to balance out the week of July 4th. But it's easy to pump up the big times, and you're, you're moving into a big time right now. People are settling back into their normal lifestyle, and now's the time to pump that up. A Reactivation is a perfect way to do that. If you have questions, if you need to see the postcards that we use, a get well postcard, uh, you can go into Cairo Up, into the forms library, the marketing campaigns, and check that out. You'll see all the assets, including the scripts that we use. So good luck with that one.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, kind of the biggest thing is to get back on track. A lot of us take a little time off work, and, and so do our patients. So it's getting back into the swing of things. And what we'll notice is that uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, for uh, depending on what side of the table you're on, uh, it's a good time of year to, to reactivate those patients and get them back in the door. One of the things that we are going to see, which we're going to talk about uh, a little bit now, are disc and I think this is something that you and I both recognize as a, uh, a mechanical problem, but we also need to recognize it as a chemical problem. Because it's going to dramatically affect what we do and when we do that to our patients, I have, we're going to go over a, a, actually a case study that I just presented in my office about two weeks ago, and this patient um, had a significant problem with his uh, neck, unable to turn his head, uh, significant uh, radiculopathy going down his arm, resulting in weakness, and uh, and what we've done to to help him along, and I think that's one of the things that is the beauty of this kind of a diagnosis is that that patient at that time wants to be out of pain. I get it. He gets it. Um, He's going to select an option that's best for him. And sometimes they want to jump into a neurosurgeon's office. Sometimes they want to get jabbed with an epidural steroid injection. Sometimes they want to measure all dose packs. Sometimes they want to see you and fortunate enough for this patient, he saw, uh, you know, one of us, he saw a chiropractor. And when you can do that, you can get the right information, the right education to help them navigate their symptoms. And so my main job at the very beginning was to determine, do I have a chemical problem, a mechanical problem or both? Because if I have one of those things, I can treat all of those things. And as long as they don't have progressive neurologic deficit, I can do that without the need for significant imaging uh, and and costing a lot of time and money. So what we'll do uh, for the the next couple minutes is to go over how to make that determination. Because if someone has a chemical problem, we should really consider a chemical solution or time. If they have a mechanical problem, we really need to go after it with a mechanical solution. And so let's go over that to start off with. I know Dr. Burlesman actually wrote one of the most popular blogs on this as far as chemical versus mechanical. Uh, he's given me the look like, no, I didn't, but it was three years ago and dementia sets in early. Uh, <laughs> um, I actually rewrote it about two years ago. So I put my name on it. So that's why he doesn't know it. I do that a lot. I steal his really good blogs and, and put my name on it. But let's go through that. Let's talk about this. So as far as chemical versus mechanical, what are you using uh, within your treatment? room to help make that differentiation
1: yeah then that differentiation is crucial that if somebody has a disc lesion that disc lesion can cause either a chemical irritation to the nerve root or a mechanical irritation and making that differentiation makes all the difference in that patient's outcome that we know that the disc is that little ball of jelly that's then wrapped and wrapped by a ligament around it the annulus and if that annulus begins to weaken or fail sometimes that jelly can start to creep outside And once that jelly creeps outside, we need to remember that only the very outer layers of that annulus are vascularized and innervated but the vascularization is the bigger issue here because now when that jelly comes out it's exposed to the vascular supply which means that it's exposed to the immune system for the first time it's introduced and the immune system swings by and says hey who are you and it says hey i'm a little jelly from in the nucleus i live here and the the bouncer of the immune system says i don't see you on the guest list you need to go and so it calls in all of its other friends they attack it And there's this inflammation that's happening right next to the nerve root. That spills onto the nerve root, sensitizes the nerve root, and sends pain down the course of that nerve root. That's something that we have a little time with. Yes, it's irritating. Yes, it's something that the patient is not going to like. But it's not urgent. Nobody's dying here. The second process is if that that amount of jelly that comes back, or a a spur, or significant foraminal encroachment now actually causes physical compression of that nerve root that's a whole different story yes you're still going to get those ridiculous complaints but you're also going to start starving that nerve for blood supply which means that not only the superficial sensory fibers are going to be irritated but the deeper motor and reflex fibers are going to become compressed and ischemic and now we start losing muscle we start losing motor and reflex And when that patient starts to have those symptoms, alarms should be going off in our head saying, this is a bigger deal. This is the patient that needs the MRI. They potentially need a consult with pain management or neurosurgery. Not that you won't fix it by the time they get to the neurosurgeon, but at least we're moving in that direction so that if there is some neurologic loss, we've done everything possible to make that happen. And the biggest way to differentiate those two is to check the motor and the reflex if you see that there's an asymmetric decrease in a reflex that's a good sign that there's probably some mechanical compression if there's a uh, any muscle weakness or certainly any atrophy that tells us that there's either been a, a muscle problem or a longer term muscle problem with that compression and so we need to move a little quicker for that patient and when we don't forget when we test motor that it's not okay to have that patient stand on their toes on both sides Because when that patient tells you that they have foot drop, think about when they tell you they start feeling that. It's usually toward the end of the day when the compensatory muscles have fatigued. So rather than having them do one repetition of a toe raise or a heel raise, we want them to do ten. And what we'll see is they'll usually get through the first two or maybe three, and then things start to slow down until finally they're not able to do eight, nine, and ten. And if you don't have them do multiple repetitions, you wouldn't have picked up that motor loss, meaning you wouldn't have picked up. This is a mechanical compression that deserves a little more attention. Pure chemical, we can probably wait on the MRI. Mechanical, better jump on it. Yeah, absolutely. That
0: reflex change, the weakness, the sensory changes. And then one of the greatest things that I've learned um, is just listening to the patient is that those chemical radiculopathies, those radiculatises, they hurt all the time. doesn't matter what they're doing. It's there. It's constant. It's a chemical problem. Now, it can be exacerbated through uh, physical movement, through any kind of compression. However, it is an inflammatory reaction. There's no position you can put yourself in to take away that inflammation. And don't forget, when you have inflammation, it will cause hyperalgesia. So it's one of the things that we have to think about is that that sensitivity of that nerve to fire has significantly decreased, and now a lot of things hurt. Think about this with the patient, or maybe yourself. If you've ever sprained your ankle um, and there's an injury to the ATFL, um, If you touch the skin on the outside of your ankle, it hurts. There is nothing wrong with that skin. It wasn't injured. However, everything around that is now sensitized
1: because of that underlying injury. Yeah, one thing that we've learned is that when a nerve root is irritated, not only is the nerve root inflamed, but the whole nerve becomes inflamed. And because that nerve is inflamed, there's increased fluid, there's increased hydrostatic pressure. Well, anytime there's increased hydrostatic pressure, we're going to start weeping fluid. Think if you sanded your knuckles in between two of your fingers. That's going to weep fluid, and if you left those fingers together for a period of time, it's going to start bonding those fingers together. So we get this weepage of fluid that eventually turns to little spot welds, and that's a problem for nerves. Not the weld, but when you start moving the the nerve that's now become welded into a spot, that's going to create some traction ischemia. Imagine that your nerve's a bungee cord that's three feet long if nothing's obstructing that bungee cord nobody's stepping on it you pull the nerve and the whole nerve stretches fairly symmetrically each piece of that stretches its respective percentage but now if somebody steps on that nerve a foot away from the end where you're pulling All of that stretch is happening in that last foot. And that stretch means there's increased traction, creating a traction ischemia, and the nerve is unhappy. So anytime that our patient has an an issue, even at the nerve root, the whole nerve is susceptible to developing these problems. And one of the things that we've learned that helps are nerve flosses and nerve glides. You're jumping all over this outline, man.
0: You have an outline? I'm I'm having trouble just following along with my own outline. I didn't know you had an outline. I did have a question, though. Does size matter uh, with discarniations?
1: I got you. Uh, yes, it does. Um, but not in the way that we would expect that it does. I this was going off the rails even more. Um, not the way that we'd expect that it does. That we know that small discarniations cause a small inflammatory reaction. And we know that large disc herniations cause a larger inflammatory reaction, like a large splinter or a large piece of foreign material that got stabbed into your body. There's going to be a big reaction. That's going to create more pain, but it's also going to resorb that disc uh, more quickly. We know that disc herniation, since that material is foreign to the body, the immune system attacks it, on average, a lumbar disc herniation is resorbed in 17 months the size of the herniation determines how quickly that actually happens so somebody with a large herniation is typically going to have more pain up front but it's going to go away quicker somebody with a smaller herniation just lingers on forever and ever and those are the tougher ones for us to solve those large herniations, as long as they're not causing a mechanical compression that needs surgical intervention, are typically ones that we're going to have more success with at the 6- and 12-month mark. So that's a perfect lead into
0: what I want to talk about. There's a spine surgery article, 2018. I'll put the the actual um, article in the, uh, the bio uh, for, for the podcast if you want to read the whole thing, but it was interesting. I talked about something called uh, friction radiculitis, and it was an interesting paper because I've seen this patient, you've seen this patient. They've had this problem. It's going down there. Let's call it the right leg. Uh, You're unable to resolve it. No one else is able to uh, resolve it. They finally get their MRI and they do have a disc herniation, but it's on the opposite side. And I've seen this patient because they won't get it. They won't get operated on because it's on the wrong side. They can't correlate that structural problem with their symptoms. So they don't get surgery. However, they do respond to epidural steroid injections. And what this paper found is that because they had a disc herniation, that on that same side, it actually moved the entire entire spinal cord or nerve roots over to one side. And it was actually causing those nerve roots to rub against that same side pedicle. That unfortunately, now we're starting to get irritation due to the rubbing on the pedicle down the contralateral side. So I want to give you two, two thoughts on this. The, the first is, this is that patient that I do nerve flossing on, that I'm getting them to move and they can't get that that range of motion back and they're still having that pain, they get a little better, they get a little bit worse, get a little better, get a little worse, and it lasts for a long period of time. My question to myself, and, and hopefully we all ask that question, is it something that I'm doing to them that's preventing them from healing And for these kind of patients with friction radiculitis, It's possibly something that we're doing to themselves or or they're doing to themselves. So when nerve flossing isn't working, and I love nerve flossing, I love neurodynamics. It helps uh, get uh, that motion back to that nerve, helps decrease inflammation, increase range of motion. The papers are uh, numerous to, to show the benefits. However, if you're not seeing a patient progress, think about that. Is there something that you're possibly doing to cause their symptoms? And the second part is the inflammatory part because one thing that I did with this patient that I talked about two weeks ago is instantly we jumped into, let's let's, let's get this thing moving. I mean, as a chiropractor, there's nothing better than uh, hearing, uh, in this case, it was a neck problem. Get the joints moving. And then amazing, they, f- they feel better, they feel more range of motion, but unfortunately, it's still just kind of lingering. We have to answer that question, do they have a chemical component? Because for that patient and for patients that prior, there's a chance they just need things to calm down First, this paper said let's do the epidural steroid injection. They did the injection. Everybody calmed down. They felt better, um, and that's the case with some of our patients. We have to say you know what? Let's let this calm down first, and then let's dive into our mechanical treatments. So, Dr. Burleson, I want to talk to you about this patient that I had
1: two weeks ago. Can you give me some more information on it? Uh, I probably can, since it was me <laughs> that uh, my wife and I had gone away on vacation, and I just woke up one morning with a stiff neck running down into my shoulder. And um, we were on a, a scuba diving trip. so I spent the next day with several days with my head in extension for a couple of hours a day. And it just got progressively worse so that I was getting this burning pain in my in my forearm, my finger went numb, my thumb and my first finger was numb, and then started to even notice a little bit of weakness in the wrist extensors, uh, especially the finger extensors, and a little bit even in the triceps trying to do a push up. Uh, I noticed that it was a whole lot easier on one arm as opposed to the other arm. Not that I could either do either alone. Did you get both of them? Uh, no, <laughs> neither. Uh, but I noticed that it was much more difficult on the left side. Um, and so I, I was in a, a lot of discomfort, uh, which I had never really experienced before in my life. It was something new. And uh, I did a couple of things. Number one, I, I got a hold of Dr. Steele, first of all, and he uh, adjusted my cervical thoracic area. It just felt tremendous because that had been tight for a few days. But I still had the ridiculous complaints. Um, I got a, a dose pack, and um, that helped and Dr. Steele said let's also do some directional preference therapy that we were doing some chin retractions and a little bit of overpressure uh, and some nerve flossing as well and the nerve flossing I, I didn't really tolerate that very well initially and now I can do the nerve flossing again so with treatment uh, from Dr. Steele and Dr. Brown throughout the past two weeks I'm feeling markedly better and one, the other thing that I've learned in this process is that you know if I had a patient who had motor weakness and severe pain that was incapacitating them, and they were 60% better after two weeks, it's time to throw a party. Um, and, I, and when it's you, it's a whole different story. <laughs> so I still say, I'm still hurting. I still, you know, 40% of my pain is there and my strength isn't completely back yet. It's almost there. Um, and so it's, it's very different when it's you. And it was a good lesson to me to be a little more sympathetic to our patients rather than saying, hey, you're improving. Things are going well. We need that cheerleader, but we also need to be sympathetic that in their life, it's a whole different problem than one that, one that they're describing to you.
0: So, the things that, I mean, the one thing that I did wrong, in all honesty, was to prescribe the nerve flossing. I just did it, it was a knee jerk reaction. Let's do some upper limb nerve flossing, median nerve floss. And I don't think that was the right choice, though, visit one. Um, however, I do think that manipulation below that area to help free up some of that, um, uh, that range of motion in the cervical thoracic joint was a good idea. Adjusting the area with the disc herniation, maybe not uh, a good idea. We, we didn't do that. Um, however, you know, a lot of people just adjust, adjust the site of pain, uh, maybe not a good option for this patient. The steroid. Um, some people don't like that option. They want to go for a natural approach. That's fine. Don't care. We um, have a chemical problem, solve it with mechanic or a chemical solution, and the steroid helped them out
1: significantly. So that's one of those things. My wife is a labor and delivery nurse, and she always talks about how patients come in and say, I want to go completely natural until that baby starts coming through the birth canal. And that was kind of the case with me that I thought, no, I'd never use a steroid. I'd always tough this out, but it it was pretty uncomfortable. And it was something that I think did provide some additional benefit. It allowed the chemicals to calm down. And we know that if somebody can calm down the chemicals while someone else is actually fixing the underlying problem, we're going to get better results. And for me, it was a good, good combination.
0: And the last thing I learned, which I've known for a long time, is we're our own worst patient. That we, uh, whenever something happens, we think it's something more significant. And, um, and one of the things that, that I know helped uh, Dr. Burlesman a lot was just doing the retractions. It, it seems so simple, but going back and throwing that overpressure in there opens up that um, intervertebral foramen, doing that on a regular basis helps take some pressure off that nerve. So the, the, at-home, the take-home message that I want to, to kind of bring home is uh, keep it simple and understand the problem. Uh, And the problem isn't the diagnosis, not the patient, it's is there compression, you know, mechanical compression, or is it chemical compression? Um, And if it's one of those things, then use the appropriate solution. Uh, To round out the blog, um, I do want to talk about one thing that I think is extremely important, and that is healing. And now this could be its own blog, it could be its own book. Um, However, there are four questions that I think that um, often go through my head when I'm treating a patient, uh, and it it has to do with healing, that I think that if we can understand it a touch better, so can our patients. And that is the first thing. When someone is not healing in a time-appropriate manner, we have to be concerned. You know, it's the same thing that when someone comes in, they said, oh, I saw this video on YouTube and this guy can heal frozen shoulder in one visit. And I, I before I would say something a little more vulgar, but I was like, you know what? It's good that, that person was able to solve that shoulder pain in one visit, but it wasn't frozen shoulder. So the first thing you have to do is make sure you have the right diagnosis, because if you truly have the right diagnosis, we know how long it takes for that tissue to heal. If you have a tendon problem, it's going to be three weeks to seven weeks. If it's a rupture, it's five weeks to maybe six months. If you have any kind of a muscle problem, it's a couple of days to maybe a month. That if you have a ligament problem, a grade one strain within the first month, it should be gone. If it's grade two, it should be, you know, within that first six months and, and, and so on and so forth. So knowing what tissue is injured will tell you how long it takes them to heal. So making sure that when that person has a, um, you know, a, you give them a grade two ligament sprain of the ankle and they're better in two days. Hey, throw a party. The patient's excited. They're better in two days. Your diagnosis was wrong. However, the patient's better. Um, so the better we get better at you know, the better we do with a diagnosis, the, the, the more we're able to help ourselves. Now, the second one is going to be, uh, I think, a little bit tougher and sometimes a little more um, intimate with our patients is that is there anything else going on with that patient that's limiting their ability to heal? And that's something that I think that is um, sometimes a tough conversation. And I think that with the rise of medication use and the rise of autoimmune disorders, we need to have an understanding of those because what we're seeing in the research, and we do a lot of research here, is we're starting to find that things like TMD, things like fibromyalgia, um, are affecting our musculoskeletal complaints. And I found a, a, not a neat paper, but a paper talking about ulcerative colitis. You know, something that a lot of people have digestive issues is now limiting the ability for people to heal. Um, So really having to understand, do they have any other diagnosis in their body that's causing excess inflammation and inability to heal? Uh, You've seen it. I've seen it. TMD. Uh, Isn't it ridiculous how many other conditions it's um, associated with?
1: Yeah, it really is. That um, I mean, all the way from inflammatory arthropathies through um, biopsychosocial issues, one of the things that we've seen a lot of data on in the past couple of years is the biopsychosocial component of TMD that a lot of those patients do have some anxiety or depression that's complicating it and certainly there's a, there's an underlying mechanical issue that we can have an effect on but if we don't address that patient's ability to recognize chronic pain, that our brain learns pain over time, it learns that this is a threat and the more that that patient believes that something is really wrong, the more they're right, the more that they're going to continue to hurt and that's going to set us back. We're not going to help that patient heal. So not just the um the things that you talked about that slow our patient down those comorbidities that we're aware of. Sometimes that extra part of our OPPQRSTU, the U being unusual, when the patient has some unusual belief systems about their pain, they're probably not going to heal as quickly or at all. And if we don't do our job to address those, uh, we're not doing that patient the best possible service.
0: Yeah, psychologically. I mean, even uh, you know your metabolic syndromes like diabetes. Um, unfortunately, those patients go through their typical activities day of daily living, and they just don't heal like the rest of us. There's a paper uh, in a Journal of Science and Technology just came out this year talking about people with Achilles tendinopathy when they have diabetes, especially thickening and collagen disorganization of these 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 people because that tissue doesn't heal. And unfortunately, that patient is unable to walk or run as much as the next person because of that metabolic syndrome. And then I think the last part about healing is probably the most important. And it's what else can we do to help support a patient while they're healing? Because the one thing they have to do is to stop doing the activity that caused their problem. But we also need to think about those ADL modifications. Someone has cervicogenic headache, but they sit at a computer desk with their chin protruded all day long. There is nothing you're going to do for them that's going to solve their problem. There is no manipulation for that. There is no myofascial release for that you have to change the person and their posture. Supplements. We saw some great research with Tennis Sulfur and other types of uh, peptide therapies like BPC-157. These different supplements can help the different tendons or different uh, tissues heal. Uh, I'm not a supplement person, um, you know, admittedly. um, It's not that I don't place any importance in diet. I would rather change your religion than change your diet. It's just I'm not good at that kind of therapy, essentially. Um, but I do use a functional medicine doctor in there. In fact, we have two now that we use, and, and I let them deal with that. That's what they're great at. I'm more of an MSK kind of guy. However, we need to be at least cognizant of when there is a, um, a, a nutritional deficit that's leading to uh, failed healing. And then rehab. Uh, similar to our talk last podcast with the patellofemoral pain syndrome, that when someone has a problem with their TFL, can you dry needle it and stretch it? and be nice to it, and ice it, and tell him not to run? Absolutely, you can do all those things. However, if you don't go in and strengthen the weakened tissue, in that case, the gluteus medius, and teach them how to run differently, it's going to come back. So whenever there's a problem with healing, take into consideration that multimodal factor of the things that we have at our disposal. Uh, And that's one of the things that I I love about up, to be honest with you, is because with up, it's going to not forget all those things that you forget on a daily basis. And I say that about you, but I'm the exact same way, that if, uh, if I have a patient that's later on the day on a Monday, and I've been here for 10 hours. Um, do I want to talk about running shoes with them or a different way of gait? It's just not possible. So having a, a resource to give them the right exercises, um, the right treatments, um, have the right infographics is going to be tremendous. Now, today we talked about a lot of different things as far as nerve flossing. I would highly recommend uh, going through and looking at those videos within up and how to do nerve flossing for you. That's difficult. However, what are your patients going to say when you give them a nerve loss? No, I don't know how to do that. Make sure you give them videos. Make sure they have the right videos on how to do them. They're very simple. They just need a little bit of illustration, a little bit of voice narration to make sure they're helping you solve their problem. And I think that's something that often goes overlooked in our clinical care. We think they're going to do their exercises, but if they encounter any points of friction, they're not doing their exercises so we have to make sure we keep it very simple for them
1: yeah there have been a couple of uh, really hot topics over the past couple of years in the research and dry needling is certainly one of them Um, i would say shockwave therapy has been one of them but absolutely uh, there's there's a big one on nerve flossing and nerve gliding exercises that there have been multiple studies. There's one by JOSPT that said our patients who have sciatica, when we add a sciatic nerve floss for that patient, we can decrease their average VAS by two points, They decrease their oswestry by 9.3 points. Similar research for patients who have carpal tunnel syndrome and cervical radiculopathy. So something very simple that we can do in office and send the patient home with that's going to make a major impact on their outcomes. You know, some, at some point, going to start to fact check us. With all of our numbers,
0: I hope so. <laughs> um, something that many people may not know, which is, uh, in, in all honesty, unfortunate, is the backbone behind Cairo Up. Um, in, in all honesty, the backbone behind Cairo Up is on that home screen, and it says Research uh, Review. That if you want to, you want to look at all the research, the most pertinent research, the most, the, the best stuff that you're going to need as an evidence-based chiropractor. It's right there. Uh, we have a team of researchers that go through the literature, scours it, and turns it into usable uh, format information. If it is actually something that's going to affect your clinical day, we put it into If It's a new evaluation, new exercise new new what ha- uh, have you um, it goes into chiop, so it's a tremendous asset uh you know as far as reading books and attending seminars and reading blogs, those are all tremendous forms of 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 knowledge. However, if you want the
1: fastest knowledge transfer system that's available that's the tab you need to go to yeah the other thing that's available is sometimes not all of the answers come from the research that when we look at a cervical torticollis there's only a handful of articles about that so sometimes we need some evidence informed input and one of those topics that we we knew was one of the questions that's toughest you probably dread it i dread the question it's doc i need a new mattress what should i buy you know that three to five minutes of your life has just been sucked down the drain to tell the patient what to do in fact we did a survey of our subscribers so the evidence informed aspect of this was that we asked our subscribers what's the best mattress what's the best sleeping position what are your top tips and we were able to put uh, put together some information. We know that chiropractors don't like waterbeds uh, unanimously. Uh, most of them do like air and memory foam. Coil spring's another option. Latex is okay. Typically, chiropractors recommend a medium to firm mattress. And one of the good pieces of advice is if you're choosing between a couple of options, Always go with the firmer one because you can always soften up a firm mattress with a mattress topper as opposed to trying to make a a soft mattress firmer. It kind of depends on what position the patient sleeps in. If they sleep on their back, they typically like a little firmer. If they're on their side, especially if they're lean, their greater trochanter and acromion is going to dig into that firm mattress, so they might like something a little softer. And the most important piece is make sure there's a return policy for that mattress, that if you're not able to take it back and get a good chunk of your money back, if not all within 90 days, then that's probably not the mattress for you. As we said, it takes three, 80% of DCs said it takes them three to five minutes every time a patient asks that. Well, we've been able to put together that information from the survey. It was more than 200 uh, evidence-based chiropractors who responded to that, thanks to the FTCA for helping us as well. A lot of good input there Um, and now instead of going through that five minute process with the patient i i I tell them you know what i've got some information that i put together i work with a team of chiropractors who help to define the best recommendations and care so i'm going to give you some research that we did and if you have any questions let me know so i've slimmed that discussion from five minutes to a couple of seconds and for me And you, time is money. That if we can save 20 or 30 seconds per patient visit, we see a lot more patients at the end of the day, a lot more patients at the end of the year.
0: You know, one thing you just said about the return policy with the mattress, I wish we had that for our patients. <laughs> um We're going to go ahead and end this. Are you on, returning me? <laughs> yeah, gonna, I'm 60% better. We're going to end this podcast. But before we do, um, we had an interesting question from a, um, a subscriber and also a listener of the podcast, Dan Farrell, Fer- uh, uh, also in Illinois, which is exciting. And he talks about the everything is wrong patient, that patient that circles the entire uh, body picker on your intake form. And I was going to answer it. We, we have a paragraph answer, and uh, Tim and I were talking about it. That deserves is an entire podcast because, one, we need to have a solution for it, but, two, we also need to have um, a way of dealing with that within practice, um, and it's not going to fit into one paragraph. And I have my ways. Tim has his ways. And we're going to talk about those uh, techniques and, and strategies we use and also something called a checkmark patient. Um, so I look forward to, uh, to coming at you next month with uh, that answer.
1: We appreciate you listening. Hope we gave you some tools that you can use. Make sure you go in to check out the nerve flossing and nerve gliding. If that's not part of your current repertoire, that tool in your toolbox can make a massive difference. I hope that by working together, we can all make a massive difference, make our profession the most uh, utilized profession for musculoskeletal care. We'll look forward to connecting with you next time. Thanks for listening.